running boom of the 70s came during simpler pre-internet times. A unique cast of characters riding that wave came of age. You never knew who would show up, and races became household names, attracting capacity fields year in and year out. Co-hosts Ron Galuli, John Gorman, and Grant Whitney, inspired by the first runners reunion in 2019, speak with some of the characters of the era, share their stories, and where they are today. There's something for everyone in each installment of the Runners Reunion Podcast. Good afternoon, avid Runners Reunion Podcast listeners. We are literally recording the Monday before Boston here on what was a very warm, uh, formerly sunny, but uh, certainly very temperate um, uh, afternoon in the run-up to the uh, 2023 Boston Marathon. Uh, it is our pleasure this afternoon to be joined by somebody who has been charting and following the sport for the better part of uh, his professional life, and that charting and following a Boston even extends to his youth. You won't need a scorecard, Jim Dandino or any of those others, to know that we are talking about Bob Fitzgerald, the legendary editor and publisher of New England Runner. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the Runners Reunion Podcast. Grant, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be with such distinguished company. Well, thank you. Um, I, I want to correct something, or, or, or maybe you can disabuse me of this, Bob. Um, I heard from uh, several unnamed sources that there had been some discussion at, at, uh, at, at your headquarters now about how you were going to be following and covering this race when news broke about 10 days ago or so, that Gorman was going to make another appearance uh, and run again. Uh, can you tell us, was, is there any truth to the rumor that you're actually going to assign a writer specifically to follow Gorman? You know, I worry about Gorman. I'm thinking more of an intervention than having anyone invest the time to follow the guy. Well, I, um, and I should mention for our listeners, because in honor of the marathon, of course, um, we'll be taking a hiatus uh, after this podcast because of the marathon, and because we assume it will take John at least a week to 10 days to recover before we'll be able to get back on, on, on cycle. What are you thinking about up front as the kind of stories that might uh, be coming out of this year's edition of the race? Well, there's always a thousand, oh, well, there are 30,000 runners. There's 30,000 stories. Everything has an angle. Some of the more obvious ones are that it's the 100th anniversary of the last time the marathon took off from Ashland, its original starting point. Mm -hmm. It's the 40th anniversary of uh, the Greek consulate starting the tradition of giving the winners laurel wreaths. It's the 10th anniversary, uh, nefariously, of the bombings in Boston, which we're still kind of recovering from. But, you know, I, I look at it as there's always some celebrations, and that's part of the tradition and the strength of Boston and the energy that comes to it every single year. So every single year is is a, is a great communal outpouring. And I, I really look forward to it. And so does everybody, whether they have participated in the marathon or they just look at it as a spectacle because it's it's such a, a noble undertaking by so many average people, uh, present company excluded. Oh, boy. Okay. I mean, Gorman in particular. Oh, boy. Wow. OK, well, moving right along. <laughs> Moving right along. So uh, any predictions, time or winner? I am thinking, well, I my um, coverage is the men's um, 
my, the men's race. So that's kind of my bailiwicks. And I would, I would have to say that the guy that's won 16 of his last 18 marathons would probably be the prohibitive favorite, Iliad Kipchoge. Okay. You know, the double Olympic gold medalist, the world record holder. Uh, it's not a given because the marathon's never a given. You've got Evans Chibet in there, who's uh, who last year won New York and Boston, the only, only the third guy this century to do that. Mm-hmm. You've got Gilbert Gay, t- uh, Ethiopian, who was fourth last year. So on any given Sunday, as the uh, Al Pacino movie, football movie went, and especially with the marathon, because yeah. you don't know how people are coming in. If, if someone's feeling ill, they're not going to tell you. If they have a cough strain, they're not going to tell you. But it's going to be found out over 26.2 miles. Oh, that's I for don't sure. Know much, I don't know much about the women's race, although I pay particular attention to the Americans. And I thought it was kind of neat, like, if there could possibly be a Boston Hall of Fame. And by, I mean, by that, I mean, Ryan Hall currently has the men's U.S. record at Boston at uh, 204, that that crazy day when everybody ran so fast with a tailwind, which wasn't a tailwind the whole way. But anyway, and his wife's running. Now, Shalane Flanagan has the women's U.S. record at 222. I think it's 12 or something. But Sarah Hall just ran 222, 26 or so at the World Marathon Championships in Eugene. So it's a t- it would be a tough task for her to pull off a great time, but she could join her husband. And wouldn't that be crazy? Well, and she had a good race result down at Cherry Blossom, right? It was yes, right? very, very much so. Yeah, and now no, Ryan's, was... Ryan's getting back into running. That might be a Boston Marathon story. That guy oh. looked like the Incredible Hulk for a while. For a guy that ran two hundred four at one point, you'd, you'd think he was a power lifter all his life to see him the last five years. So, yep. interesting duo, very interesting duo, and very intertwined with um, Boston history. So, well, you mentioned Boston history. So this is now the way back machine moment. Um, tell us, tell us your first memory, uh, because if I understand things correctly, Bob, you are, are you're a native son of Massachusetts. Well, I'm a member of one of a proud member of one of the 13 villages of Newton, of which Aubendale is the capital where I grew up and Aubendale, uh, abuts West Newton where the Newton Firehouse is at the 17 mile mark where the runners turn onto Commonwealth Avenue and go up that first hill. So I remember as a, as, as soon as I had memories, I remember my being with my parents on that first hill every single year, whatever the weather is, and would wait for all the runners, but mostly Johnny Kelly. And okay. as the years progressed, as the decades progressed, the wait, the wait got longer and longer, but still it was, uh, you couldn't leave until you paid you, you know, you paid your respect to the elder statesman of the marathon. So then it was like when the running boom hit and everybody was running and it was, it was, you know, not only an athletic endeavor that a lot of people got into, but it was a movement and you got caught up in the energy of that. And you, especially when you lived in new England, you had to run Boston. Mm-hmm. All your friends that didn't run, if they heard you were a runner, it's like, are you running Boston? Have you run Boston? And then it's like I ran Boston and believe it or not, people would uh, look at me like I didn't know. And they'd point and go, marathon man. I mean, it was a, uh, it was a, uh, a point of uh, admiration almost by your community that you ran the Boston Marathon. You took part in it. I mean, it's just such a, uh, a source of goodwill and support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that when I got into newspapers and whatnot, that was my well actually that was my niche because not many people were writing about running because nobody really sure knew about it, even though it was the easiest thing in the world to cover 
When I want I want to get to that, but you had mentioned earlier the hundredth anniversary, the fortieth anniversary, and then obviously the nefarious tenth anniversary. But on the fiftieth anniversary, I think we want to note uh, for our listeners this is the fiftieth anniversary, i.e., nineteen seventy-three. Jacqueline Hansen and John Anderson. Uh, I understand both. I don't know about Jacqueline, but I know John Anderson is com coming into town, and so he will be here for those festivities too. So we've got that full triumphant there. But so, but but Bob, kind of in that light, um, you did, you know, after a while waiting for Johnny Kelly as a teenager, that might have gotten kind of old. I, I could understand that. You at some point migrated, and um, before you migrated to Amherst, I might say, did the running bug hit you at any point in those formative years? the grade school, middle school, high school years? No, um, I played traditional sports mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of my friends did. My father played basketball and baseball. I played hockey and football, not okay. in any you know, rebellion against my father, but I was just better at those sports. And I, just the vantage point of go, coming from a mainstream venue of uh, sports participation to running, is like a complete transition. I was of a I was of the mind that I don't want to look like the skinny geeky guys. Uh, okay. I remember on the football team there was a guy that was ultra fast. He was a wide receiver, and one day we were watching the we were suited up and we were at practice and we were watching the track team run around. And I go, you know, we got a pretty good team this year. You think you'd ever want to go out for it? And he goes, What are you kidding me? You know, track is for skinny kids, geeks that like pain. <laughs> I, I think that's the kind of the prevailing notion. You have a hear about all the problems that um, track and cross country coaches have with athletic directors. It's all based on that, that, you know, kind of warped look from a football mentality or, or a mainstream mentality to track and cross country, which if you haven't participated in, you don't really have an appreciation or an understanding of. Gorman, I think um, geeks that like pain might be part of the show running. Uh, I don't know, but that that's a that sounds like a that that line might be a winner. I don't know what you think. Yeah, we used to get called the football players used to call us stickmen, and we were like, uh, you know, the showers where the football players had the locker room right next to the showers. Uh, we had to walk across the the gym, you know, the cold gym in the winter indoor track, you know, and they took their showers first, and we were second. And so it was to, no respect. order. Pecking order, that's it. Although, who was snapping it? towels, John? Yeah. Was that? A lot of snapping towels. Oh, yeah. Ouch. So I got scars. <laughs> now, but wait a second, though. We had, was it Tommy Mortimer who said that, you know, the varsity jacket, was that our guest? That, you know, the varsity jacket was the big deal? It was that? Am I? I think uh, Pilgrim, yeah. Pilgrim was an exception as far yeah. as the uh, yeah, but, elevated but status of track. Yeah. I mean, well, I guess you went a couple of times. Yeah, a couple of state championships might make a difference. I don't, yeah, I don't know where that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so Bob, so you decided to be a uh, rebel in some ways, uh, despite being, you know, brought and part of that family culture of, you know, celebrating the quintessential New England April experience of, you know, almost like the Postal Service, right through rain, sleet, and snow, the whole nine yards. You know, you would be there. Um, you did your own thing. When do you think? Uh, and you obviously graduate high school and you have a, a gift for the gab and the words and, and all of that. You moved on to Amherst, right, for school. Am I correct in that? Right, UMass Amherst. Yeah. Fitchburg um, Fats there preceded me by a couple of years, Randy Thomas. 
Uh, okay. Jane Wessel, Jane Wessel was on the cross country team while I was there. The late Jane Wessel, but uh, okay. very well known in running circles. Well, and she was uh, she was mentioned, I think, uh, Ron John by uh, Julie Peterson, if I'm not mistaken. She she, she coached there Julie's freshman year. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So again, it's it's amazing how uh, how many concentric circles and and how tight some of these things are. So Bob, as you are approaching early adulthood. And you were uh, an English major, am I, am I correct in thinking that? I was an English major that took six journalism courses. Okay, so give us a context of six, journal, uh, six journalism courses out of how many total courses for uh, an English major? Oh, hundreds. But, you know, I, I, I started, I, I took those courses late and I wish if I had to do it over again, I maybe would have majored in journalism. Okay. Um, I, I loved it actually, you know, but I, with only that, <laughs> that uh, small, um, you know, uh, exposure to it. I mean, the highlight of my career as far as journalism goes there, besides writing uh, a, a few different things was being in the uh, head of the journalism's office, drinking beer with he and one of my other teachers. I was trying to get out of the language requirement. I carried a cooler up to the third floor for the guys and they allowed me to drink beer with them while they went over their times at the Chicago Sun Times, which was fascinating. And then at the finish, you know, Howard Ziff, who was the, the head of the journalism department, said, "All right, Fitzgerald, what are you here for? Get out of the language requirement? Not going to happen. They got a budget. They got to substantiate it. All right, you, know, you can you can get rid of those empties on your way out." <laughs> wow. So, talk, hey. about, talk about a cold shower. Uh, no, you know it's a rough business. I guess so. <laughs> and they have I a thick so. hide. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. I, I imagine that's true. So after school, um, did you, were you that kind of uh, rudderless early 20 something or did you have a, a mission and a passion in terms of? I was, I was, I was, I was rudderless. Um, I didn't get serious about doing anything until I had bumped around a little. Okay. And then um, what I did was I had run Mount Washington the year before for the first time and oh, was okay. really taken with it a unique and a very unique uh, event and so for the second uh, year I wrote a preview of the Mount Washington road race for several mm -hmm. newspapers um, sent it to them on you know just a whim but uh, I would write a generic opening a generic close and then I would interview people in the middle and I didn't know Bob Teshik at the time, but he was the race director, and I called him, and this is before the the cell phone and emails and all that, and he sent me uh, Excel sheets with all 800 registrants for that year's Mount Washington, and I put them on, I went up to New Hampshire, there was a, a friend who had a cabin there, I, put, I laid them all out on the floor, and I circled the towns that had the largest participation, believe it or not, Gloucester, which I thought was a coastal town, but I actually learned it's very hilly, had the most people. And then I get in touch with people that belong to these different clubs in these different towns. And I said, do you know this person? Is it an interesting, would it be an interesting interview or whatnot? And so I sent them out. And then I started, uh, I got, everybody ran them. I got calls back. You want a string, which means you, uh, you just do assignments on, you're not part of the staff, but you do assignments for the paper and you get paid for it. And then I, I you know, in short order, I was full time with the paper. And I had a I, I had a running column. I did uh, two short features a week, and I had um, the weekends reserved for some kind of uh, live event. 
so I, I want to I, I don't want to leave Mount Washington quite yet, because if if I'm understanding things correctly, you were somebody close to you described you as a defensive tackle in high school who began running after college to lose, quote unquote, beer weight. And oh, I know that person quite well. It gave you that quote. Yes. Uh, he qu caught the bug, shed the pounds and logged best of 1433 for three miles and 240 for the marathon. Boston, of course. But that doesn't mention Mount Washington. So uh, help me here, Bob. I had, you know, I never had. Why Mount Washington? I mean, this is oh, why, why Boston Marathon. I mean, but it's know, totally different. I mean, it's like it's uphill. There's no downhill. I mean, it's, you're it's a defensive a tackle. It's, for goodness it's as difficult as a marathon while being easier on your legs. Well, and that was the motivation. And it's totally unique. It's okay. more unique than a marathon. OK, OK. So you know? what do, do you remember the thought process that said, gosh, darn it, I'm going to do this thing? Well, yeah, because I had gone to so many races by myself or with a friend and run into people from the Cambridge Sports Union that finally they talked me into joining and they did Mount Washington on an annual basis. Okay. okay. And so that's how I got into it. Peer pressure entirely then. Well, peer pressure and, you know, pressure from within. It's like these guys are doing it. I want to do it. It sounds like a hoot. Okay. <laughs> it's like one of the greediest things you can do. Okay. You know, uh, you hate yourself in the last couple of miles, but so, so, so it is in a marathon too. But then you really, so year two of that is when you're really the bug, at least in documenting the sport kind of really took hold. It sounds like with that stringing idea, the, you know, looking at the 800 entries on the Excel spreadsheet, the, you know, looking at the local angles, looking at that stuff. Is that, would you say that that was one of the moments where you kind of said, whoa, this is, I like the writing. I like the narratives. And is this something that I should really dig into? I used to write short stories as a kid. And okay. I got a little bit of notoriety from teachers, you know, when I was much younger. And then I got away from it. And so it was something I always thought I could fall back on. It, you know, I jumped around do, doing different things because I, I realized I always had something of a net. I had a default to go back to. Mm hmm. And then it just became uh, a time to do it. <laughs> but at the time to do it, it's like, look, I didn't go to a, a four-year Colombian uh, journalism school. I knew I knew right away when I, even at UMass Amherst that the the teachers were like light years smarter than me, and probably seventy percent of the class I was in there with was smarter than me. So I had to have an angle. And I talked to one of my journalism professors. He said, "You know, you got to find a niche. You got to do something that." other people aren't doing if you want to write for newspapers around here and that's what was in my mindset at the time you got to go out go out to the sun belt or do something and, and mm -hmm. you know that's how don dan shaughnessy all these other guys that wrote for the globe did it but you know i was too lazy i was too indolent to do that but in terms of a niche or something unique i was just in love with the whole running experience at that point as a lot of people became and, and so, so could you expand on that what made you fall in love with it well it gave you you know running gave you a or me you know seeing as i was jumping around gave me a purpose it gave me mm -hmm. a community it gave me health <laughs> i mean i originally started running i lose beer weight from uh umass amherst and then got into it and at first i was like okay i don't want to look like these guys i mean these triathlete guys they look great but i don't, I don't want to put in all that work but then when you start you start losing some weight and you get faster and it becomes more motivational for you. Mm -hmm. My mother was afraid that I was going to become like, you know, biafran, you know, I was going to look sickly. And, 
And I was always of the mind, you know, I weighed 215 when I was a defensive tackle at Newton North. I can always put the weight back. So I was never worried about that. So I got down to like 162, 167. I was still big. Okay. I'm 6'2. Okay. Still big framed. But, you know, I was able to uh, compete within my own arena as well as mm -hmm. I could at that height and weight. So, so, so it kind of evolved to that point that you began to see some of the, well, I guess all of us probably have had some measure of that feeling. Well, it's for our health. It's yes, we want to be competitive. Did you ever, how about the drive piece? How about the, the competitive piece within your, within your sphere? I mean, you obviously played competitive sports. So there was something about that. Did that ever kind of uh, take a primary control of the experience for you? Or was it more these other intrinsic, almost non-quantifiable elements just about yourself? You know, I think uh, looking at it from the vantage point I'm at now, it's transitional. It's a lifelong sport. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you have the opportunity to be competitive and you have a background in competitive sports, I think you just... Uh, hardwired to be that way mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you have to stay that way i'm not of the mind that like you know if like a you know i talked to uh i did an interview with steve scott you know america's great miler sure. yeah, yeah yeah and he mentioned to me something that stuck with me he said what bothers me the most is the guys that love the sport that i ran against just quitting when they when their ego told them i can no longer run and produce the times i used to i'm done it's mm. like you love the sport. You've always said you've loved the sport. Get into coaching, become a volunteer, become a race director, stay, you know, stay active. Why? What's what's the mindset there? So I think it's transitional for me. It's like it wasn't my whole world. It was a it was a wonderful part of it. And it, as long as I could be competitive, which was three whole years, <laughs> I was. And then, you know, I was able to transition into writing about it. And then your outlook on running becomes mm -hmm. a little bit more recreational. But then you think about travel and seeing new places and transporting yourself of your own mobility instead of driving around in a car and seeing different things. And then, you know, when you get to be my age, our age, it's, you know, maybe the competitive aspect if you can stay in shape becomes an age group aspect if you want to go that route mm -hmm. no you know no one's pushing you to be an age group competitor you gotta no, oh that's for sure yeah. so the, the pressure's off once you're you're done being a master you know so let me ask you this then so we've leaped around a little bit here but but i appreciate that to kind of get a little bit more inside inside your head uh in a way you started, you went from stringing to writing more full-time. Was there a particular paper that you were mostly known and affiliated with? Um, I started stringing with the News Tribune here in, uh, well, I live in on the South Shore, but I used to live in Newton. Um, and I wrote for a, a magazine uh, up on the North Shore called Prime Times that got bought by North Shore Weeklies. Mm -hmm. But it was only for nine months that I did that. And then I started doing... Um, what do we call them? Random gigs, uh, freelance, freelance uh, stuff. And I went over to Nantucket and we covered this triathlon. I had a friend who was a race director and there was this group first Winthrop. They owed, they owned like 90% of the real estate on the Island. And they wanted, it was a shoulder season thing. They wanted to put people in their rooms. So I went over there and I wrote that up and that got on the front page of triathlon today. Not because I did anything. I could have been a Nobel laureate. It wasn't going to get on the front page, except that the photographer from the newspaper was with me. It was a nice gig to go over. And he got a great shot of this uh, attractive woman winning the triathlon. So it was front page. And uh, John McGrath, who got all these different subscriptions, 
wanted to put out a annual triathlon guide that he was going to wrap advertising around, but he needed someone to do it. So I had done this freelance gig and then I got a call from him and my contact was Dave McGilvery, who set me up with, you know, you should talk to this person. You should talk to that person because Dave had a triathlon business in, in his hometown of Medford at that point. So um, you're going to have to, if, for many of our listeners, uh, some may know Dave because of the connection to the marathon itself. McGrath is, is a, a name that not as many people I'm going to gather know. Certainly me as the, the interloper into New England. That's, that's a name that has not met much. Can you just tell us a little bit or describe for the rest of our listening uh, population, so to speak, the, uh, the, the significance of, of what they both did and brought to athletics writ large? in the ecosystem of New England. Yeah, sure. Um, back in the running boom, John McGrath essentially had an event business. He put on the Milk Run 10K, if you ever heard that in Boston. He put on a couple of bigger events and he put out a newsletter at one point to advertise those events and handed them out at different races and whatnot. And people picked them up, but it also had some content in it that people were interested in. And they were very much interested in the calendar of events, which you couldn't find anywhere. It was like your one source. And so he started getting feedback that people were interested in this. And he had it in the back of his mind that, you know, it'd be nice to expand this if I had some help. And at the same time, Dusty Rhodes, who had been working for the Celtics in PR, started her own event business, which is now Conventures. And it was all women and they got grants and they started pushing John a little bit away from the event business and more into the uh, publishing business. It was kind of like the, the tail started wagging the dog, you know, and he had a willing participant in John Lawway. He was a good photographer and 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 was going to be the editor, and also Andy Burfoot, who thought it was oh a great. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Everybody knows it, him or the thought name. It, thought it was a great idea to expand this whole concept. So the three of them started it, and it ended up just being McGrath and Lorway because uh, Burfoot's boss at Runners World decided now it's a, it's a you know conflict of interest, even though it was just like a little ragtag you know regional running magazine, as it turned out. Okay. Uh, so those guys, so those guys started it. They really got the ball going and so, it, it just took off because the really, you know, there was, it was during the running boom, everybody's invested in the sport. Here's content. Here's your calendar. There's photos. Is this, that, and the other thing. So let me ask you that. You said it was in the middle of the running boom. Do you have, do you attach dates to the boom? When did it begin? When did it end? Or is it still going? It's well, it's it's in a different phase. It's it's an event boom now, but it started in 72 with Rogers. I mean, with uh, Shorter winning the um, gold medal in Munich. And he won the silver, you know, following 76, it right. should have been gold. But Walter Sapinski was juiced. You know, he's he's in the he's in the uh, Stasi reports as numbers such and such. Um, but OK, Shorter won it. But it was Bill <laughs> Rogers who brought the running boom to the people. So you you, you kind of needed an outside personality and and you you had Frank was kind of he was a lawyer by trade and a little bit aristocratic and a bit reserved, whereas Bill, who was almost garnering his equal attention with his Boston and New York wins, was a guy that you could walk up to and start talking and figure, you know, you knew all your life. Ah, so he, okay. really pers he really personalized the running boot, especially in this area. Okay, so that so that would be 
so recognizing the time frame, but yeah, 72, that, 76 into the eighties. Okay. But, but so you see Rogers as having the, the human touch that the endearing human touch that maybe made it more palatable to the broader. Oh, oh very much men. so. Very yeah. much so. Okay. I mean, I was at, uh, we have a, a program we do at the Hartford marathon called new England's finest. And we've been doing it for uh, 12 years or so. And early on, we'd go to the expo and we'd set up our booth and Bill would be next to us. He was always an invited guest and people would come up to him from around the country. And everybody thought like they probably talked to Bill for a half hour on, on a given day at the Crescent city 10 K or the Utica Boilermaker. And he's got, I watched him one after another come up to Bill and say, Hey Bill, how are you doing? And he'd look at them. He didn't know who they were, but then there was like a pause and they'd say, Crescent City 10K, remember? And he'd say, oh, that hill at three miles. He remembered the roots, the events. And as soon as he made that connection, they all thought, oh, he remembers me. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> there you go. And he'd go, on, he'd go on for hours and hours like that. And oh, people loved something. it. Yeah, so, you got more than your money's worth with him. Guys, have, have you, you guys were milk run runners at some point. Am I right? Or is that, uh, or am I yes, dating we you? Are, yep. are you? Yeah. Successful? Yeah, many times. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a great race. I think eventually it went transition from a 10k to a 5k the last time I ran it. Uh, but that was a great race, a rite of spring, right before Boston, and uh, uh, we always headed to the Elliott after that race too. How I met my wife it was after the milk <laughs> run in 1987. We went to the milk uh, Elliott afterwards, and that's where uh, I met Helen. So. It's well, a, it's, it was a great, a great race, great post party. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess that there will never be, you'll never forget that one for sure. So, uh, as you're describing the arc here, Bob, it, it sounds like uh, you've traced the antecedents of the the magazine. To to your understanding, was it always regional? Um, I guess one of the things I find interesting is I I grew up. I'm so much younger than the rest of you guys. Let's be clear. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm getting the I'm getting the raspberry for our listeners here from from uh, Gorman, <laughs> um, meaning that you know New England is New England. I was an upstate New York guy, and I had my runner's world, and maybe I picked up runner or something like that. Or I mean, it wasn't I guess that was of the era that was one of the, there were two magazines, Runner's World, and and Runner. I thought um, right, and runners and Runner's World as per usual, absorb that. Absorbed. Yeah. Same with running times. Yeah. And running times is the more recent of the three that were absorbed, right. presumably. Right. And then runner's world has been sold, but go ahead with your train. Yeah. So uh, this is where I get long. Um, so how did you end up with the arc of McGrath and, and those other folks? Um, and, and now we're into the early mid nineties thereabouts. What made it the moment for you to take over whatever this effort had now been called, presumably New England Runner or something like that at this point. Help us with that. Well, after I did the triathlon guide, John asked, would you like to, to help out with the magazine doing some copy editing? And I was still at the newspapers. Well, no, actually, I had left the newspapers at that point, but I was still part-time at the wine company. Um, I held two jobs at once. Excuse me, and wine company? So you're, you're, you're into wine? Hey, Ron and I were both employees of the same uh, establishment at one point, and we were teammates on its team at the Manny Hanny. 
Oh, that's assorted. That's assorted tale. Yes, yeah, but yes, the Lower yes, Falls, yes. Lower Falls Wine Company is uh, at the bottom of the hill when you on the Boston Marathon route when you come down out of Wellesley down that long hill into Newton Lower Falls. It's a big red structure on your right by a waterfall. It's a boot. It's a boutique winery. So yeah, I was still working there, and I said, sure, I can do that. I can do some well copy editing. Actually, was editing. <laughs> the, the semantics weren't exactly correct there, and so. I started doing that and it was like, at some point, John, I won't say became disassociated with the magazine, but he was more about phoning people and, and working a business agreements and this, that, and the other thing. And, and the magazine, it's kind of like, uh, my wife had worked at a co- as a cognitive therapist in a lockdown unit and got smacked a couple times in the jaw and said, okay, wait a minute, this, this is a little dangerous. It's not for me, even though I love the teaching and all that. So I said, Hey, I think we could put you on staff here. We could use some help in this direction and with subscriptions, uh, circulation and all that. So she came on board and there came a time that we were kind of putting the magazine out. It was a lot of editing because John's idea of race results of what was take everything in. And then you end up with six pages of overrun. It's not how I'd run it, but that's how it was, that's how it was done. Um, and then the news became, they got out that he was going to sell it. And that, it was like a two-year process with him selling it. But eventually, Michelle and I, you know, met his offer. And everything got written down. And we took over in July of 1998. Okay. okay. Yeah. So... At the time, what possessed the two of you? I mean, if if Michelle was here, would she say that you were crazy and I was along for the ride? Or was she the driver? Give us a little sense into the thinking. She was not, you know, she was not of the running culture, per se. She did okay. run, but not competitively at all. I actually got her to run her first 5K in Cambridge. And she was deathly afraid that she was going to be last. And I said, forget it. There's these people that have made life-changing decisions that they're going to, you know, they might weigh 260 pounds. It doesn't matter. They're going to be in this race. Okay. Those people are going to be there. All right. Um, You're not going to come in last. And she did it. And then afterwards, we went to the Plow and Stars, which was near Cambridge Square. And we got some food and we're having some beers. And some, some of the runners came in. We started talking with them. And then she's like, Hey, is this is this how it is all the time? You know, I, I could get used to this. <laughs> but she 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 was I wouldn't say she was kicking and screaming, but she was a little bit trepidatious. I remember going down to uh, Courtney Bird's house, who became a lifelong friend. But this is like 30 years ago and would cover the Cape Cod Marathon every year. The first time I went down to cover it, it was like I got an invite to stay at his house, but to pitch a tent outside. There are a number of people that pitch tents outside. But I didn't know I didn't know what he looked like. I talked to him on the phone. So I went in the house and she's there. And you know, I asked, hey, is Courtney Bird around? But before we got there, it was like, she's like, let me get this straight. We're going to someone's house. We're going to pitch a tent on the front lawn and we're going to stay there the weekend. But you don't, you've never met this guy. <laughs> and Courtney is like Bill Rogers. Once you meet him, it's like he's 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 putting a beer in your hand. It's like you've known him forever. But that's that's how a lot of people in the community are. And that's what I think he's, you know, one of its great traits. So, John. So, Bob, it almost sounds like uh, Litchfield. You know, those are two similar races, you know, Falmouth uh, and and uh, Litchfield. You, you can go to, you know, 
uh, with Litchfield, they say, yeah, just go to this house. Uh, you don't even have to knock on the door. Just go in. Uh, bedrooms on the right. And <laughs> I go to I go to Litchfield now. That's become one of my uh, favorite races. And Rick Evangelisti puts me up at like a little B and B there. And it's calmed down so much at this point yeah. that Michelle has actually said she's going to go this June, mm. after saying no for so long. And I and believe me, Gorman, you guys, <laughs> I stayed away from that race because I didn't think it was you know given my uh, human condition, my temperament, I didn't think it would be a good location for me. I could be too easily corrupted. But the stories that came out of there, wow. So I'm I'm intrigued if we take a freeze frame here for a minute, Bob. So, you know, you're in, you and Michelle, you've persuaded her. She's caught religion, so to speak. Um, And I'm guessing it's not, you know, she's not aspirational towards the front end. She's just the the story of personal uh, perseverance and development and, and all of that and the people. You know that ability to to knock back a few, the camaraderie and and all of that stuff. In 1998, what would if, if, looking back to 1998, what would you say was the state of the sport writ large? We're talking road racing, running in general, and compare that, if you would, uh, to what you might see as the state of the sport today, and you know, do a little compare contrast. Well, the sport was booming. Everything was new. Um, it's as balkanized now as it was then. In other can, words, can you define? Okay, you're going to define. Yeah, it. you've got you've got a number of uh, non-cohesive elements. These are all your road races, mm-hmm. and they don't work in tandem. I know from the time I spent um, in newspapers and the time the journalism classes, road running back in '88, '98. It was kind of looked at as semi-professional softball by the, the the mass media. Outside of single events, mass events, like your big city marathons. I mean, anytime you close down the streets for an event, then there's a lot of money involved. And by, by a lot of money, again, you have to quantify that because I think whoever wins one of the world marathon majors, it's third world money because you're making about as much to win that as the the guy that finishes 50th in the recent masters. I mean, you're American, it opens up opportunities, but not like it does for the African runners, you know, right. who can buy a hospital and feed right. farms Our, and all that. Right. Exactly. So I think that's why you got so many Kenyans taking the drugs now because they're, they're vying against each other for this money. That's a whole separate other uh, situation. You know, 88, 98, I mean, it's still it's still the same. I, in, in terms of media coverage, it's worse because you don't have as much media. You don't have as much community newspapers anymore. Uh, okay. They're disappearing from the landscape. I was at the uh, Long Gal 10K last year in Gloucester, Good Harbor Beach, and you've got the best USATF Grand Prix regional runners in New England there. And it came down to Julius Deal, D-I-E-H-L is how he spells his name. But he's a sub 14 minute 5K runner, 5,000 meter runner. And a guy named A.J. Ernst, who is a sub four minute miler. And Ernst just outkicked him at the finish. So I did a brief uh, video interview with these guys, like under two minutes. And then I'm just talking with them. And they both thanked New England Runner for covering the sport because their hometown newspapers that used to cover the events no longer do. Mm -hmm. Gloucester Times used to cover 
that lone gull race and doesn't. And the, the competition's there. The human interest stories are there. I mean, one of the people I talked to there was the, you know, Julie Peterson, who was just on your podcast, five times Olympic marathon trials. There's all sorts of stories, all sorts of angles. But the, the newspapers, I mean, social media has just uh, totally um, kneecapped the, the mm. print industry. There used to be people that would come and, and cover the race and cover the races and be somewhat knowledgeable. Now, if anyone sent, they spend their time asking what should have been background questions. Did you run in college? What college did you go to? And, and a lot of it's not the, the people that are being sent to cover these events, if they're sent to cover at all, are woefully unprepared. And if it's a community event, you're not going to get any help from the race directors because the race directors don't know the athletes or the stories that are available more than anyone else would. Give you an idea of how disenfranchised you can be as a reporter trying to cover running. The first time I covered a golf uh, tournament for the newspaper was the uh, Danvers Ferncroft LPGA tournament. And I had two, two stories to do. One was to uh, interview Jane Blaylock, who had a great career, was at the tail end of it, but very nice person. And that was easy. That was great. And then it was to actually cover. It was a one-day tournament, 18 holes, to actually cover the tournament. And I'm going, how the hell do I do that? I've never covered a golf tournament. So I go, I got to pick up the Herald or the Globe and see what Paul Harbour's writing, and see what these people write. And I'm reading it and it's like, so-and-so, you know, uh, hit his hit his, his tee shot off a hickory bow and it landed in a puddle. And he, he just barely whacked it out with a three iron to line drive it on the field. And then, you know, double bogey. And then this other guy, was gonna he's on a par three and he's teeing off and he he suddenly goes to his caddy i want to i want a seven iron not a six and he hits a hole in one i'm going well i don't want to dip into lots of logger language but i'm how the h how the heck how the heck dang it to the fires back how the heck are these guys getting around he's like these reporters are like superman how do they do it so i finished the blaylock interview and i walk over to the tent where they're doing the uh, press conference and it's like six guys that come at me with sheets detailing everything, everything that happened on the course. And then I'm saying, all right, I know how these guys could do it. I could have sat in a chair drinking beer while the tournament went on, come over here, gotten their sheets, and I could write the thing. But unfortunately, with running, you don't have that. Unless right. you're the Boston Marathon, you're some big race that has a press kit and all that. So let me ask you, and, and I want to get to some of the personalities here because that's our bread and butter. All right. Um, outside of New England, how far have you traveled, interviewed people outside of the New England, you know, ecosystem, athletes? Oh, Cabot Trail Relays. I went to in 1992, Cape Breton Highlands. Yeah. Uh, okay. 90, uh, 95. I was at the Berlin Marathon. Okay. Uh, so you've I gotten mean, around. I was, I was in Finland. I've been to Italy. Okay. Um, so you're, to, not a, you're not a you're not a regional Disney, guy. Been to Disney since it started in '94. We had a nice 20 year gig there. Okay. Uh, John Hughes is the race director, who, by the way, will be the race director for the uh, Olympic marathon trials in uh, oh, 2024. Okay. So let me ask you this: on the one on ones, you mentioned Steve Scott, for example, somebody that right. I, you know, very much admired from a distance, although I never had the leg speed. What was that? Did you have any interviews, male or female? where you kind of came away from it saying, wow, that is one tough 
scary individual, intensity or otherwise, something that kind of set you <laughs> off? Yeah, Regina Jacobs, who was a juicer and, and was well known to be. She set, a, uh, she set a world record here in Boston at age 40. For, she went out of four minutes for 1,500 meters. I'm sorry, you don't do that at age 40. She was running for Nike too. And they had a little presser. And and I uh, I, I think she took umbrage because she thought I was asking her a leading question because I'd, I'd been over to World Cross in, um, in Dublin and we just missed the podium. The US women just missed the podium. And she was running great guns and she had been running cross country and she should have been on that team she bypassed it. They were doing drug testing there. And I think that's why she avoided. She eventually got busted. Right. But right. I mentioned something to her. You know, it would have been great to have seen you in Dublin. All the U.S. women were asking for you. And she goes, well, I had a I had a cold. And I go, really? And she goes, why don't you do your homework? And she just snapped at me. Wow. It's like, but she's like the only um, disgruntled, if you will, kind of personality mm -hmm. that I've, mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. met. I mean, what? I just talked with uh, Emily Sisson, who's wonderful, you know, mm -hmm. marathon, half marathon record holder. What um, about, a, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. no, I've, I've talked to a lot of the top people and they're all very gregarious so and you, articulate. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you've, you've mentioned kind of the way that Rogers, you know, has can connect with people. Right. Um, if you come away from an interview saying, wow, that is one deep person. I mean, that's somebody who's got is multi, you know, multiple interests, not a one trick pony uh, and kind of said, you know what, I'd love to get together with them over a lunch or, you know, share yeah. a bottle because there's so much to talk about with them. Anybody like that that leaps to mind? Yeah, John Gorman, pretty much. Well, OK, aside from Gorman. Let, the let's get Boston this year, you know, an ageless you know. wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not to not to not to sell John short anyway. I was thinking somebody a little bit more with more than regional notoriety. Carl Lewis was impressive. Okay. I did an interview with him, but and he was he was very outgoing, very uh, insightful, very very you know well versed. But he was also jacked. <laughs> I mean, physically, this guy was like just a specimen. I mean, other runners look like runners, but he was he was a, he was a long jumper also, as well as a sprinter. He was just like mm -hmm. a physical specimen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the most jack guy I've seen that I've interviewed. As far as um, running goes, as far as running goes, um, if if you had to take and redo one of those one-on-one -on -one interviews, redo it not because it was bad, but just because you really enjoyed it. It, it, it does there is there a name that leaps to mind? No, everybody's I've you know, I, I haven't done an interview that's this long. So I haven't really been exposed to someone's personality over that period of time. Everybody. One of the reasons I think like Americans should be given more of a uh, marketing approach by organizations, etc., is that they're personable, they're articulate, they're humble because it's a humbling sport. They'd be identifiable by the common person. But so much is just given to the elites, the, the, the African runners. And, they, and, and, and talking with them, they're very nice. They're very humble. They're soft-spoken. You know, humble and soft-spoken isn't exactly what works in our market. But you don't have a hometown identity with them. 
you don't have a hometown identity with running per se. It's not a team sport. It's not like you can look at the New England Revolution. You can look at the New England Patriots, the Boston Celtics, the Boston Bruins, the Boston Red Sox running. What? Uh, well, we've got these people running Boston. It's more like in the in the broader sense, United States. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, track, you just lose people because nobody went metric. You know, I, I give Massachusetts, Massachusetts is the only New England state that still at the high school level does the mile and the two mile that people can equate to. Yep. 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 I think what it would take, you would, to get notoriety, to get people interested in this sport again, you would need an outside person, outsized personnel. And you haven't had one since pre really. And Bill Rogers would probably be like the secondary person to that. I mean, if Connor Mance, who's our next young up and coming great marathoner, if he was to, if it was to be announced that he was going out with Taylor Swift, you would immediately see media reaction, fan interest, especially young kid interest. Like, hey, yep. this is cool. Not every, not all these people are geeks. Look at this. Is um, he running? Is he running this weekend? Yeah, he's. Uh, he did. He did. He debuted in two oh eight thirty or forty in Chicago. And Scott Fable, who's also running is right in that same ballpark, ran just about that same time PR in last year. Okay. Um, so, if, hey, if those two guys could hook up and run together, I think that would be a great uh, situation. So, 1998, you bought New England Runner, and that so happens to be the same year that the Elliott Lounge closed. Where do you feel, like, I feel like after the Elliott Lounge closed, there was no center place that, runners could go afterwards like you know back when the LA was open you could have like channel seven news would come in you know the winners would come in It'd be a big party there's really like like i think the runners or even the media were like you know a bunch of zombies you know they couldn't find you know they try to make this place you know the center center of a piece for a party but and and there was always rumors around saying oh it's going to be this place or it's going to well meet him Everybody met in 10 different places, but no one found the, the, the place that daily was. You know, do you agree? Yeah, I do. Tony Revis wrote a, a great article um, on the closing of the Elliott Force. And it's just like your journey as a runner at that age. So much of what you did around, especially the Boston races, the um, Tufts 10K and all those other events that would take place in Boston everybody went there afterwards and then other people went there regardless because it was just a, a place you could meet and greet. You go in and, you know, Tommy Leonard's going to be behind the bar, you know, Bill Lee could be at the bar, Bill Rogers, uh, Karen Smyers, who was a uh, world marathon, a uh, world Ironman championship women's woman. She was in there a lot because, you know, she ended up marrying uh, Mike King who had an interest in the place, but there was always a fun time going on. Um, Coogan's in New York also, uh, kind of like uh, the Elliot in, New, you know, down by, um, Ma- not Madison Square Garden, but by the uh, Armory, the Armory, the Armory. They, mm-hmm. that's closed now, too. It was a different time, though, I have to admit, it was a different time and a different culture. And there were a lot more characters in the sport than there are now. So we're, we're getting a little short on time here. Um, we just Ron, started. Well, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. So Dr. Fitzgerald. Yes, sir. What is your, what is your prescription um, to say that 25 years from now we would still be able to have this kind of conversation that Boston is still as 
positively notorious as it is, um, what would your prescription be to get us from 2023 to 25 years hence? What's necessary in your view to keep the sport healthy? I think more of a insight into our own athletes. I theorized uh, in an editorial a while ago that if there was some organization that had a media branch to it or could hire a media branch and you just put on four races and change them up every year and you take our top athletes and you put them, you know, in front of social media, you put them in front of the TV, you know, you bring them into people's living rooms and whatnot. Then someone would say, oh, that's that that's that Emily Sisson. She's that nice. She's that nice lady. And she's so talented. You don't have that now. And, you know, who won that? You know, if you, you know, next year, as sad as it is, someone says, hey, who won Boston? Some African. You're getting it's the same dialogue all the time. And if you say some African, you're going to be 99 percent of the time. Correct. Whatever world marathon major you're at. So. Given the fact that you've got foreign domination, let's let's not just turn our heads away from the Americans because they're they you know I think you know they're probably number two in the world outside of the African nations. Grant you, Fisher, you've got a couple of those. Yeah, up, the up Europeans. I mean, yeah, yeah you, you, we have great athletes that just don't get promoted. It's I kind of I don't know. It's almost like an inferiority complex you have. You know, it's, it's a small money sport to begin with. It's never gotten. Uh, it's not a team sport, and that that kind of that kind of kills you. I remember back when uh, we the World Cup was coming to New England, and all the columnists from uh, the Herald, the Globe, were theorizing this is this is too boring. I mean, come on, you got to score two to one after ninety minutes. It's never going to take on here. Well, guess what? A month after World Cup, you had beat writers covering soccer for those newspapers. Right. Right. You got to drum. You got to drum up the uh, interest, though. Yeah. So it sounds like celebrate and elevate is the uh, is the philosophy that you think will you know would would bring us home. Right. Gentlemen, John, Ron, any final questions? Yes. Uh, my first question is, I will be. Well, I want to tell you, I will be a, probably hanging out at the sevens after the race on, on Monday. Uh, if you want to, you know, live interview. The you sevens. Know, recording view. Yeah, the sevens. Yep. We're getting away from the craziness of being, we try, like we've gone to a few places just across. So I think the sevens will be good. And uh, I also want to know where you will be, your camera will be, so I can look for it to wave to you when I'm finishing. You know, uh, I'm always, left, I'm always, right, I, center. I always go from the comfort of the Copley where they give you out sandwiches, finger food, and you can watch the races unfold on the many monitors they have there. And then I go out to the photo bridge, the upper photo bridge. This yeah, that's year, why. Yeah, that's why I want to look. Where? This year I'm going to do it a little different. Um, I'll be on the photo bridge for you, but for the winner, especially if it's Ilya Kipchoge and he writes and he, he sets a course record, I want to I want to get a headshot on of the 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 break tape going. So I'll be down on at street level, and then I'll go up top. John, I will see you at mile twenty. I've I've got uh, compensatory time that I have to uh, spend on the course for my employer. Ron, anything, okay. any, any closing, any closing comments? Yeah, it was, Bob, it was uh, great to see you and Michelle a little over a year ago to reconnect and have a lot of good laughs. So you definitely miss those days and uh, look forward to reconnecting soon. Well, thanks. You know, there's uh we'll be at some of the Franklin park uh, cross country meets. So maybe we'll hook up there. You know, there's the turtle swamp brewery that's now 
two blocks down from where Doyle's used to be. All these places that used to be iconic are now gone. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we'll have to tailgate. Yeah, you'll have to tailgate. (laughs) We're down to tailgating. Put down the tailgate. Well, it has been an absolute delight this uh, Monday afternoon, literally the week before Boston 2023, to have the scribe of the sport, somebody who's really had a balcony level view of running in New England for the better part of the last 35, if not longer, years. Our guest this afternoon, again, the great editor and publisher of New England Runner, Bob Fitzgerald. Bob, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon on the Runner's Reunion podcast. Oh, thanks for having me.